In today's program, we hear from a Cambridge conservation scientist on why there's hope for saving the planet. You're listening to The Science Show on Cambridge 105. In this section called Scientists at Work, we talk to people who, for some reason or another, find themselves working, researching or thinking about science in Cambridge, England. We're not just science, we're local, and we also wear our safety specs. Even Chris here seems to be reading a book in hers. What's the book, Chris? Actually, these are my glasses, Roger. And it's an exciting new book called Wild Hope by Andrew Bomford, and we have a fantastic interview with him on today's show. So tell us more about that. Well, I met Andrew on location at the University of Cambridge, where he's a professor of conservation science. He's also a fellow of the Royal Society and is the man behind the book, Wild Hope. But I started our chat by asking Andrew what first sparked his interest in zoology and conservation. It's hard to point to a particular incident. I think I came out into the world being quite interested and excited by nature. But I do know from talking to my parents that from the age of about three, I always seemed to have my nose in a book about animals or was playing with toy animals. And then within a few years, I began to hear, as I guess this was the the late 60s, so we were beginning to hear about uh, what was happening to the natural world and that things, some some creatures were uh, in trouble. I began to try to do something about it and apparently I used to organise events with friends to which we'd invite our family and persuade them to give us bits of money for us telling them in in little shows about the creatures we'd learnt about and I remember we used to then send the money off to World Wildlife Fund or Save the Rhino or whatever it was and really from then onwards I've I've known that's what I wanted to do with my life and and, um, very luckily that's, that's how it's worked out. You have a wonderful passion for conservation. What have you learned in your research about why conservation is especially important? I've learned that it's extremely important from really from uh, a couple of different angles. One, we know that nature is in serious trouble and that wild places and the creatures that live in them have declined dramatically. We've lost probably around a half since the start of the Industrial Revolution and are continuing Uh, to decline, if anything, at an accelerating rate. It looks like what's left is being lost at somewhere around 1% per year. So on the one hand, we know we're losing things, and we know from looking back at the fossil record that when rates of loss of that sort of level happen, that essentially things fall apart. You reach a point at which you get what's known as a, a mass extinction, and we lose an awful lot of the diversity of life on Earth, and it takes millions of years to recover. So on the one hand, the situation is quite severe from a biological perspective, but crucially over the last few decades we've begun to learn that that's extremely important from the point of view of people. People depend on the natural world for a whole load of benefits that they get from them. Some of those are uh, spiritual, some of them are, are material, and if we lose those benefits then future generations will be vastly the poorer for that. So from the moral and potentially spiritual side, we ought to be leaving the planet at least in as good of a shape as we inherited it, if not better. And then from the economic side, you've done some interesting research evaluating what we call ecosystem services. So looking at also the economic benefits of these services we get from nature. Can you tell us a bit more about what those are and why we should care? Yeah, so that's a bit of jargon, really, ecosystem services. But what it's trying to summarise are the diverse benefits that people get from natural places and the animals and plants that live in them that enhance their well-being in some way. So it's a broad range of things, perhaps easiest to conceive of the 
direct goods that we harvest from the natural world. That might be the fish on your plate, half of all the uh, fish we eat are, are wild caught. It might be timber, it might be medicines. Those are direct goods, they're tangible, they're easy to appreciate. But nature plays a whole load of other roles in enhancing uh, our own life on Earth through things like soaking up carbon dioxide and as a result of that regulating the climate globally, regulating it locally, helping regulate water flows, so dampening out floods, storing water in soils, making sure water flows relatively cleanly, things like pollination by wild insects, so uh, lots of those sorts of things. And then on top of all of that there are clearly some direct links with human health as well. So we know, for example, that access to natural spaces is important for people's physical health, but we also know increasingly that it's important for people's mental well-being as well. Uh, A remarkable example uh, of its impact on the way we think about other people came from a recent study in the United States where somebody who's since become a colleague of mine, a psychologist, did a classic psychology experiment, so using lots of psychology undergraduates as volunteers, asked them to go into an office and fill in a short online questionnaire about what their values, their aspirations were in life, essentially trying to tease out how much they valued uh, fame and fortune versus how much they valued family and friends. And remarkably, she found that she got very different answers depending on whether students were sitting in the office by themselves or whether nearby them on the desk there were three potted plants. So just the presence of three plants has a remarkable effect on how much people place importance on society as opposed to perhaps more materialistic ambitions. So if that's the effect of having a few plants next to you in an office, imagine what the effect of us gradually losing contact with, indeed losing the natural world uh, might be. Now, it's difficult to put a number on the value of nature that we're losing per year, but you and some other scientists have attempted to do this. Now, what have you found? So, uh, working with economists, I'm not an economist, so it's uh, very important we work with people who who are, um, but working with them and trying to piece together what uh, people have been able to work out about the, the value of those different services when you can try to put an economic value on them, and that's not always straightforward. And combining that with the information we've got on how fast we're losing wild places, the uh, eventual numbers that we come up with are that a year's loss of nature seems to have a long-term cost, of course this is a cost that's incurred year on year down through the years, uh, of the order of several trillion dollars. A trillion dollars uh, is a thousand billion dollars, so it's uh, a million million dollars. And to try and put those kind of numbers in perspective, because I find it quite hard, um, that's roughly of the same order of magnitude as the whole of the UK's gross domestic product, its GDP. And uh, from what we understand, that sort of uh, loss is happening each year into the future. So that's by that's roughly how much our activities are reducing on the natural world are reducing our human well-being by each year. Bluntly, that's terrifying. <laughs> but it's not all doom and gloom. Your new book, Wild Hope, has some very inspiring success stories about conservation. And I was wondering if there's a particular example that you'd like to share with us. Thank you. So the idea behind the book is that 
conservation is all ultimately about people's behaviour, and if we're going to succeed in improving the, the fate of the other creatures with which we share the planet, we're going to have to behave in a different way. But you can't encourage people to do that unless you provide them with some reason for thinking change is possible and that positive things can happen rather than just an unending barrage of negative. That got me to looking at the, the overall conservation picture globally, and while it's true that uh, in general nature is in serious decline, there are lots and surprising numbers of success stories, and so the idea behind the book was to try and celebrate them and try and learn from a handful that I could look at in some detail. One that's uh, quite close to home and is, to me, particularly unusual and uh, exciting is in the Netherlands. So if you look across different countries, the Netherlands stands out as one which has perhaps more economic activity for its size than virtually any other. The uh, GDP per square kilometre of, of country is higher in the Netherlands than virtually anywhere else. So a tremendously economically valuable part of the world. Yet despite that, a few years ago, the Dutch government decided to hand back about a sixth of their country to nature, to go to, towards having somewhere around 17-18% of their entire area devoted primarily to nature rather than to people. A really extraordinary step. And to do that, they've, um, they've instituted a whole range of really very ambitious projects from restoration, obviously protection of the fragments they've got left, restoring habitat in places uh, where it's been uh, lost, so creating new wetlands, building new woodlands and so on, and crucially uh, designing ways of linking them up with one another so that nature isn't in isolated patches but that creatures can move between those patches as the environment changes. It's going to be increasingly important they can in the face of climate change, for example. And so connecting up those patches through a network of corridors in extraordinarily ambitious ways. So, for example, uh, many of the rivers of the Netherlands, natural corridors, if you like, are being rewilded. We have this vision of the Netherlands as a very heavily engineered country, but in the downstream reaches of the Rhine, for example, they're taking down the polders uh, that have held the river in particular in, in a straitjacket, if you like, for centuries and beginning to allow it to flood naturally and reoccupy its floodplain. If you go to Google Earth, for example, and follow some of the major trunk roads through the Netherlands, fly over those on your computer, you can see these extraordinary green bridges which link patches of habitat on either side. So a corridor going between two patches to enable creatures to move from one side to the other. Enormous bridges built across motorways with grassland on, with trees on, with ponds on the bridges so that creatures can move from one side to the other. So incredibly ambitious. And to me what's really interesting about this is that whereas we might think of this as being quite radical, it's something that's been supported by several changes of government in the Netherlands. So despite uh, it costing a great deal of money, it has strong political support right across the parties. And when you talk to people about the motivation for it, Partly it's about nature conservation, but crucially it brings in lots of those elements about ecosystem services that I was talking about a few minutes ago. So it comes from the recognition that land under nature soaks up carbon, so helps with climate change. It comes from the recognition that river courses that can flood naturally absorb the impacts of floods with much less uh, likelihood of flood damage to towns that are built adjacent to rivers. And crucially, it comes from uh, recognising that nature is extremely important to human well-being and the biggest health problems in the Netherlands are 
stress and obesity. And if you can give people access to nature relatively close at hand, then that can help alleviate those health problems. I think that's one of the things I really appreciate about your perspective, and it comes across very strongly in your book, that we have to consider the social and cultural context of conservation. And when you do that, there is a way to find a happy medium to balance needs of our society and civilization against biological needs, and to do that in a harmonious way that actually is effective and can be successful. Yes, I don't think it's always possible to do that, and sometimes there are, there are um, real unavoidable conflicts and difficult choices that we have to make. But I think for too long conservationists have come from a largely biological perspective and view problems as through a, an exclusively conservation lens. What's the problem facing this species? How can we reverse it? Now that problem as such will have been caused, as I say, by something that some people have done. And in many instances what I found was that if, where people have given themselves the time to take a step back and look at the situation, not through the eyes of the creatures that they care about, but through the eyes of the people who live there or the people who are influencing what's going on there and seen the situation from their perspective, then they've sometimes been able to find solutions to the situation which benefit not just the creatures that may be inspiring them, but also the people whose decisions ultimately decide what happens there. So a good example would be uh, Western Ecuador. There, there are a, a range of mountains close to the Pacific Ocean, so west of the Andes, which are surrounded by quite dry country, but where the hills are high enough to intercept quite a lot of moisture coming off the sea. Because of that, they've got quite rich forest, very diverse, extremely diverse. But in the last half century or so, a lot of the land cover has been lost to charcoal production, to farming and to cattle production. Starting in the 80s, biologists began to get very worried about what was going on there, went down to the forest, talked with the local communities, implored them to save what fragments were left because of their extraordinary biological diversity, and to a large degree that had relatively little effect. Then in the 90s, a biologist by the name of Dusty Becker spent some time working on the birds in one particular forest, thinking about the problem of the ongoing loss of the forests and what that would mean for the loss of diversity. But then stood back and thought, well, what about what are the forests giving the local people? Why should they care about this? It's plain that just exhorting them to do the right thing for the world as a whole wasn't enough. They were getting some benefits out of converting some of the forest and so on. So what possibly might be relevant to them that might alter that situation? And she realised after looking at it for a little while that the forest was incredibly important to them. And the reason it was important was that during the dry season when there's no rain, these forests intercept fog that rolls in off the Pacific Ocean. The fog collides with this extraordinarily intricate high-altitude forest. Moisture forms, runs down the trees and uh, feeds the streams that then uh, feed the villagers' fields. Working with them, she was able to estimate how much interception went on and how much of that runoff had been lost through land that the villagers had already allowed to be converted over the past two or three decades. Now the villagers were armed with the information that was relevant to their lives, and within three months of getting that information together, they themselves decided to declare 10% of their land, it's now 30% of their land, as out-of-bounds for conversion as an ecological reserve which protects their watershed. So what conventional conservation have failed to do in more than 10 years, somebody looking at the problem with fresh eyes and who was really capable of lateral thinking and seeing a perspective from people's point of view, uh, was able to generate a solution in just three months. 
That's a brilliant example. And speaking of conservation initiatives, you've actually helped found the Cambridge Conservation Forum and the Cambridge Conservation Initiative. Would you tell us a little bit about that and how people might get involved? So those are a couple of initiatives aimed at trying to help us, the people working in conservation, really help each other a lot more. Cambridge is extraordinarily fortunate in that it's got an amazing concentration of conservationists. There's quite a lot of people in Cambridge University and in Anglia Ruskin University looking at issues from a research point of view, but really excitingly there's a very high concentration of conservation organisations around and about the city. So virtually all conservation organisations that have a major footprint in the UK have some kind of presence, often their headquarters, within 30 miles of Cambridge. So the idea behind these two collaborations that we set up, making sure there were close collaboration between the different conservation bodies, but also that they were able to work more closely than in the past with researchers. And that's extremely important for us because we're much better off where we can work with questions that we know are likely to be important because practitioners are interested in finding answers to them and then working with them to devise those questions and then passing the answers on to them through their contacts to get them implemented and used. So uh, it's about trying to make sure that we can work more effectively so that the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. Excellent. So we'll put links up on our website to those, so if anyone's involved in conservation research, they can get in touch. And what about for those of us who don't have a direct connection to scientific research or to any particular conservation organization, what would you recommend are things we could do in our day-to-day lives and in our own homes to help contribute to greater sustainability? So the exciting thing is there are lots of things that just about anybody can do. You can get involved in your own projects. If there's a place you care about, you can give your time. You can work with those organisations. You can even set up your own projects to try and improve things in your local area. In terms of what we consume, we can also make a difference. If we uh, eat rather less meat and dairy and switch to a more vegetarian diet, that will have less impact. We can try and cut back on our emissions of fossil fuels by thinking about how warm we want our house, whether it's insulated properly, how we get to work, how we travel. Of course, we're not all going to wear hair shirts and live like monks, so we're going to carry on having a a footprint. But given that we will, there are also important ways which we can offset. So all the travel that I was lucky enough to undertake for the book, I've managed to offset the carbon cost of that through a, a carbon offset scheme in South Africa. Details are in the book if you want to find out, which not only manages to soak up carbon but also recreating damaged biological habitat and employing poor local people at the same time. We can go out and enjoy nature and enthuse people and excite people about the natural world. I think that's absolutely essential and uh, we can all do that. We all uh, have nature of some sort uh, close at hand and we can let people know what we think. Our world's run by politicians and businesses and uh, we should let them know how we feel about the natural world in terms of how we vote, in terms of our shareholders, in terms of how they vote in shareholder meetings. There's all sorts of ways in which we can do that. And then lastly and crucially I think the most important thing, which is the message of the book I guess, is that despite all of the gloom that's out there that we'll hear about uh, about the environment and hear more and more of, we shouldn't give up. Half of all nature is still out there and there are remarkable places where things are getting better rather than worse. And your book is a great step to exciting people about nature. And where do the proceeds of that go to, Andrew? So I was lucky enough to get a grant to do the travelling for the book, a grant from the Leverhulme Trust, 
and so it seemed only fair that I shouldn't benefit from the book. So the proceeds from the book are going to three of the conservation NGOs, small NGOs in developing countries, which set up and run the projects that the book tries to celebrate. Wonderful. Thanks for sharing Wild Hope with us, Andrew. Thank you very much for your interest. Many thanks to Andrew Bamford. We'll put a link to his book up on our website, so you may want to check that out. That's pretty much all for today's show. Scientists at Work is made by the Science Show team on Community Radio, Cambridge 105. You can also find past episodes on the website, www.cambridge105.fm. You can also subscribe to future podcasts with the iTunes Store. You can get in touch with us on the email science at cambridge105.fm or on Twitter at 105science. Till next time, it's bye from the Science Show team of Roger Frost and Chris Crease. You're listening to The Science Show on Cambridge 105. <laughs>